As we uh, continue to worship our God by hearing from his word, will you join me in prayer asking for his help? Father, we uh, come before you this morning and we thank you for this day that you've given to us. And uh, just what a reminder each morning is of uh, your mercies that are new every morning and and your faithfulness uh, to your people. And so I pray that and ask that this morning you would satisfy us, um, that you would gladden the soul of your servants, that we would be satisfied in your love, that we would be reminded of who you are and what you've done for your people and and what you're continuing to do. And we ask for uh, your empowerment, that your spirit would enable to to us to live as we just sang, uh, that our lives would be consecrated for you. Uh, God, that we would be instruments uh, for you to use however you please in a way that glorifies you. God, we ask this in Jesus' name and, and pray these things by your spirit. Amen. Do I exist for God, or does God exist for me? Do we exist for God, or, or does God exist for us? I think it's, it's a question probably most of us can pretty easily answer up here, but we probably struggle to answer and, and believe and, and live that out in our hearts. But as we walk through life, we have various situations, various seasons where we are given the opportunity to evaluate what do I truly believe? Do I exist for God or does God exist for me? See, we can even be pursuing our own agenda, our own desires, goals, things. Maybe we think we want to do these for God, but what happens when we don't receive them? What if I'm working hard in school or I'm working hard to pursue a career that I'm convinced that God has for me so that I can honor him, but it just doesn't really pan out? What if I don't really like my job a whole lot? What if my life goes off the rails and I experience some unexpected crisis? What if I want to be married? What if it's an ongoing pain that just doesn't seem to go away? This morning, we'll be in the book of 1 Samuel, looking at chapter 1 and 2. And we're going to be looking at someone who desperately wants to be a mother. And we're going to see part of Hannah's story and allow what God shares to us through her in his word to teach us. And I think Hannah is going to be a wonderful example for us because she gets to the point in her life where she's satisfied with whatever God does and and shifts her focus from her circumstances more to who God is and what he has done across history and, and what he is going to do, what he has promised to do. And she really lives out this reality that she exists for God and not the other way around. And so this morning, we're gonna spend the first few minutes of our time Uh, just kind of briefly reviewing some key parts of her story in chapter one. And then we're going to transition to looking at her prayer of praise and faith in chapter two, verses one through 10. And as we do, I think we're going to start to see a theme emerge, this idea that humble hearts lead to satisfaction in God. Humble hearts 
lead to satisfaction in God. God wants us to be satisfied in him. Think about what that life would be like, a life where we continue to find satisfaction in God day in and day out, as, a, as secure and as strong and firm as a rock. What would that kind of life be like that finds satisfaction in God? What if our finances, our health, our grades, the many ways we try to measure how successful our life is, what if some of those things didn't really matter as much because we're satisfied in God? What if we knew how to pray when that satisfaction seems to get shaken a little bit? Humble hearts lead to satisfaction in God. And so if you're not already there, I'd invite you to turn uh, to the book of 1 Samuel in your Bibles. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, I, I think it's page 222, and we're going to review the story of Hannah. But first of all, what we'll want to realize is, is that the story of Hannah has really been continuing a story that's already been going on. It's continuing the story the first words of this book, it, it tells us there was a certain man of, now I'm going to try to pronounce this, my, uh, go, my go-to default is to just be confident and hope it works, but there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim. And right there, the, the author of 1 Samuel is, is giving us a little clue that this is continuing the story that we've been seeing in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges. Because throughout the book of Joshua, this, this region, the hill country of Ephraim, gets emphasized. And that's picked up in the book of Judges. We see it show up several times, especially towards the end, this, this focus on this region. And if we know the story of Judges, we see this continued cycle of rebellion where God has redeemed Israel, delivered them from Egypt, and brought them into the land that he promised Israel, but they continue to reject him and rebel. And this phrase is repeated throughout the book of, of Judges, that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, and there was not yet a king in Israel. And that's actually how the book ends. And so here we jump into 1 Samuel. And again, there's this focus on this region. It, it takes place in this region. And we're going to start to see this idea that there is no king in Israel, and everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes, is going to be very important for us, and very important for what Hannah will pray later on. But it forces us to kind of think about what kind of a king does Israel need? What kind of a king is going to solve their issue of, of rebellion against God? This is where we pick up Hannah's story. And as we see Hannah's story, right away we're confronted with this hardship of barrenness. As soon as we're introduced to her, we see that Penina had children, Hannah had no children. And then in verse 5, look at verse 5 of chapter 1 with me. We actually see that the Lord had closed her womb. 
the Lord had closed her womb. Does, does that remind us of anyone? Anyone that we've maybe heard about in the Bible so far? What about Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel? Hannah's not the first person that we've encountered who has been barren. And with these other three women, we see that as we, as we look at their stories, that they had to rely on God in a very special way, depending on him in prayer to receive a son. And it was especially interesting because God had made a promise to Abraham that he would have many descendants. And to have many descendants, you have to have children. And so we see with these three women that, that they had to depend on God, pray to God, asking that he would be, remain faithful to his promise to them. And as we jump into the story here with Hannah, it, that's maybe a clue to us that, that something special is, is going on, that, that Hannah might play a, a really instrumental role in, in what God is doing in Israel's history. But for the moment, she is barren. And as we read on in verses 6 and 7, we see that it gets even harder because Elkanah, her husband, had another wife who has children. Now, just take a few moments with me to imagine how, how difficult that would be, the constant comparison to this other wife who has children, the social situations that Hannah walks into where she doesn't have any kids of her own. If we were to go back to Deuteronomy, we, we see that Deuteronomy talks about uh, how for Israel, disobedience could result in barrenness. So for Hannah, maybe she's even wondering, what have I, did I disobey God? What have I done to upset him? And maybe other people are, are thinking that too. She's childless. Why? Does, is God showing disfavor? What's going on? And so we see these, this constant reminder, but then to top it all off, this other wife is, is provoking her. We see this in, in verses six and seven. It says, and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. This is a long time. So we just want to try to do our best to appreciate the, the situation that Hannah is in. Year after year, her own unmet expectations and disappointment, perhaps questioning what God is doing, why he would allow this, the challenging social situations, suffering at the hands of this, this other wife, and then in verse 8, we, we see the author zero in on this specific exchange between Hannah and her husband, where he asks, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And we think, what is going on here? Is, is Elkanah not being sympathetic? It, it seems like he's lacking empathy. But we also see a few verses earlier that the author tells us he, he loves her. So what is going on? And it, it seems like Elkanah is trying to comfort her and perhaps encourage her by, by calling her attention to appreciate what she has 
rather than what she has not. And we see this exchange sets up Hannah's vow where her perspective starts to change a little bit. In verses 9 through 11, we see that Hannah asks for a son, but she says to God that if he gives her a son, she promises to give him up, to dedicate him to serve the Lord for all the days of his life. And she makes, uh, she references something called a Nazarite vow, where he will specially, specifically be set apart for service to God. And so that even might cause us to ask, Hannah, why after praying for so long, wanting a son so badly, why would Hannah then want a son only to promise to give him up? What is going on? Well, it seems like Hannah wants God's blessing. She comes to the point where she wants God's favor, his grace, more than she wants a son. Notice how she prays, look on me, remember me, do not forget me, God. And Hannah also recognizes that, that we are simply stewards of anything that God gives to us. And she can be satisfied in God even without a son. She, she wants to please God more than actually having a child. And, and her desire shifts so, to the point where she, she wants a son so that the son can serve the Lord. So if God gives her a son, she's merely stewarding him so that she can give him back to God anyway. And I think this can be instructive for us because we should still ask for things. We should still want things. And we make our requests known to God, but we humbly know that God knows best. Remember uh, at the beginning where, where I asked that question, do I exist for God or, or does God exist for me? And I think this is kind of where we start to be able to answer that question. Because if I believe that I exist for God and, and my greatest desire is to glorify him, then I'll ask him to help me be content with whatever happens, knowing that he's in control of my circumstances. And, and he'll use whatever happens to glorify him, even if I, I wouldn't prefer those circumstances. And when I'm not content, that's when I start to realize that, that my desire for that thing or, or a specific circumstance has become greater than my desire uh, to please God. So as we, as we pick up Hannah's story, it seems like this shift is, is starting to take place. And finally, the, the third thing we see is, is the Lord's response. God uses Eli telling Hannah that she will have a son, and the Lord is faithful to that promise and, and remembers her and gives her Samuel. A few verses later in chapter 124, we see Hannah and Elkanah, they, they offer an extravagant sacrifice to thank God. And then at the end of the chapter, Hannah gives her son up. And this whole story that, we're, that, that we've just been reviewing, it culminates in this poem that we see in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This prayer of Hannah to God, this prayer of praise and faith. And so we're going to read this together and spend the rest of our time uh, talking through what's going on in Hannah's prayer. And so again, this is uh, page 225, and then you may have to flip the page 
Uh, but will you join me in, in reading these verses together? Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on his strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the, Lord, of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So with the rest of our time today, we're going to focus on these verses. And as we just initially read that, maybe the question a lot of us have is, what is going on, Hannah? How does this relate to the story we just talked about? Has she totally shifted gears? She, she talks about being childless, being barren at, at one point in the prayer, but the rest of it seems initially maybe to be very unrelated. But look at verse 1 with me. We see Hannah right after giving Samuel up. Her response is one of joy. Hannah joyfully gives her son to the Lord. Now, even after making the vow earlier in the story and receiving a son, think about how difficult it would be to actually go through and give up Samuel. He was probably around the age of two or three, and so he's very young. But Hannah is rejoicing. She's exulting. She's ecstatic. She's grateful to be able to give up her son. How hard would this have been to keep this promise? Have any of us ever maybe made a promise? We felt really desperate, and, and we promise if, if God will get us out of that situation, we'll do whatever, and we just kind of forget about it and, and move on with life. Or think about maybe a, a time when you've had to, to help a friend. And it's one thing to promise to help a friend and, and then to show up and, and do so begrudgingly, but it's a whole other situation to show up joyfully and, and happily serve your friend. And we want to take note here that, that Hannah, for some reason, is rejoicing. She's excited to give her son up to serve the Lord. 
She's certainly embodying this theme that, that we're focusing on today, that humble hearts lead to satisfaction in God. But maybe the question we should ask is how? How, Hannah? How can Hannah joyfully give up her son? How can she, as she says in verse 1, smile at her enemies? Well, we saw throughout the story that she was praying regularly and often. We saw uh, Elkanah try to comfort her. But I think the, the biggest factor here is as we look at this prayer, we see that Hannah knew her Bible. Hannah knew her Bible very well, the previous parts of the Old Testament. And she had humbly received it in faith. And because of that, she lived out what the Bible says. She knew who God is and what he said he would accomplish. And this intimacy with God and his word led Hannah to depend on him through the challenges of, of barrenness and continually asking for a son joyfully giving up that son for God to use. Her, her focus in this prayer shifts from herself to who God is and what he's doing through Israel, how he's offering salvation. And so we're not going to be able to look at all the ways that she draws from earlier parts of the Bible, but we're going to see a couple and, and, and look at a few of the ways uh, that she's using Scripture to teach us and instruct us. And we're going to see four truths about who God is and, and what he's doing. And the first truth we see in verse 2 is that there is no one like the Lord. There is no one like the Lord. There is no one who is holy, meaning that God himself is utterly distinct. There is no one or nothing like God. This is tied to the fact that he is the creator and he is completely independent. Everything else that exists is dependent. God is the creator. Everything else falls into the category of creation. This is what is going on. This is what Hannah is teaching us. Everything else is not like God. There is no one like the Lord. And this has massive implications. For example, God is in control. In Hannah's situation, God was in complete control. He was the one who closed her, her womb, as we saw. God was the one who remembered Hannah and, and gave her an Elkanah, a son. There is no one like the Lord, and he is in complete control. And Hannah could, could read this many places in, in the Old Testament, but one of the most prominent places is in Exodus 15. See, in, in the book of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, there are four key poems that help us understand what's going on in the story and what God will continue to do in the future. And one of these poems is Exodus 15, the Psalm of Moses. Right after God delivers Israel from Egypt, Moses sings this psalm. And, and one of the foundational truths that Moses teaches Israel in Exodus 15 is that there is no one like God. And he also talks about salvation, how the Lord is, is my strength and, and my song. He has become my salvation. And throughout this poem, he, he is talking about the way God just delivered Israel, but he's looking to a future deliverance. 
And this is what Hannah is addressing. She recognizes this truth. There is no one like the Lord. But this also leads her to the second truth that we see in verse 2. The Lord commits himself to his people. She saw that in the Exodus, how God delivered Israel from Egypt, but God continues to be present, committed to his people Israel, showing his steadfast love to them. There is no one like our God. This is what Hannah says. How can God say, how, how can Hannah say our God? It's precisely because God has committed himself to his people, to Israel. And so Hannah, like all of Israel, can say, that God, he's my God. He is our God. He has shown his steadfast love to us. And when Hannah calls God a rock, she's further communicating this idea. It's probably tough for us to appreciate uh, what a rock would mean in, in the same way. Uh, because we have other ways, a lot of other ways to, to find security. Uh, but for Israel, to say God was a rock was to communicate that he is the place of refuge, the source of security. He protects them. He gives them shelter as they're wandering through the wilderness with no, with no home, waiting to enter the land. God is their rock. It reminds me of uh, when I was younger, I was playing a game. Uh, the game's called Apples to Apples. Maybe some of you have played it. But if you've never played this game, you have one person, you go around, and, and one person takes a green apple card that has some kind of adjective. And everyone else has about seven red apple cards that all contain various nouns. And, and you pick your favorite red apple card that you think connects to the adjective. So I was probably about eight years old. I was playing this with my family. And I get this red card. It says Fort Knox. And initially, I wasn't really aware of what, what Fort Knox is, not growing up in the U.S., but I, I found out that Fort Knox is where the U.S. stores a lot of their gold reserve. And so I'm thinking, okay, that's kind of cool. It's probably a pretty secure place. And then a few rounds later, my grandma, it's her, it's her turn, and she draws a card. And the card is trustworthy. And so my eight-year-old mind, I'm thinking, I have the perfect card. This is definitely going to win. And so I turn it in, and sure enough, she picked a different card. She picked baked potatoes uh, because she thought that was more comforting and trustworthy. <laughs> but all that to say, as secure as Fort Knox is, or baked potatoes, God is way more secure. God is Israel's rock. And calling God a rock is also a reference to another poem from Moses, one of these other major poems uh, throughout um, the book of Moses. Towards the end of his life, right before Israel is getting ready to enter the land, in, in Deuteronomy 32, Moses again has, has another poem where he's recounting Israel's history, and he calls God the rock. I think I counted seven times. And he continues, he primarily uses this word to, to refer to God. And he tells how the rock saved Israel, the rock protected Israel. 
because God the rock is committed to his people, Israel. But what would the appropriate response for Israel be? There's no one like God. God has committed himself to his people. The response would be gratitude, praise, humbly following after God. But that's not really what we see, is it? And I think that's why, starting in verse 3, Hannah teaches us our third truth. And she warns her, those listening, she warns those against being proud. And so here we see throughout the next several verses that God lifts up the humble and destroys the proud, verses 3 through 9. As we keep reading these examples, we we may struggle to see how they connect, but I think these are all kind of examples of this. The bows of the mighty are broken eventually, but the feeble, the weak, those who are dependent on God are given strength by him. Those who were full come to the place where they're not full anymore and they have to hire themselves out for bread because they're hungry. But those who were hungry and, and weak are no longer hungry. We could go on with the next few examples, but Hannah is referencing this truth that God lifts up the humble and destroys the proud. And we see this idea continue throughout Scripture. Maybe some of us are familiar with the the well-known proverb, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Hannah recognizes this and, and sees how throughout Israel's history to that point, by and large, they haven't been humbly following after God, but they've been pridefully going their own way. And she is intent on following God in humility herself and encouraging others to do the same. Now, it's important to realize this isn't this idea of, oh, if I'm humble, God will give me whatever I want. Uh, Because that's not what's happening here. But What's going on is as we realize these first two truths that there is no one like God and God commits himself to his people, as we start to see and and live out these truths more and more, the, the response is one of humility. Wow, God, there is no one like you. I want to worship you. I want to follow you. I want to obey you and live the life that you created me for. Throughout the Old Testament, we, we see there are some faithful individuals like Hannah who, who demonstrate this humility. But by and large, Israel is not humble. We see this pattern that when Israel has a, a faithful leader who humbles that that person humbles themselves before God, Israel generally follows God. When Israel has a a wicked, evil ruler, one who opposes God, Israel tends to follow after that way. And this pattern continues, like I mentioned earlier, through the story of Judges. And now into the book of Samuel, the book of Samuel and Kings, we start to see If we were to read later on in this book, Israel is going to receive a king. And we see this pattern continue. Faithful kings, but mostly kings that oppose God and and are wicked. And so 
this is where we get to the last point. Because there are wicked kings, there are faithful kings, but every leader throughout Israel's history eventually fails the people. And so we get to the final verses, verses 9 and 10, and we see that God will send a king to save his people and judge the wicked. Probably the first question that that we want to ask, and we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but we want to ask, why is Hannah talking about a king at this point? Remember, like, like we've been talking about, at this point in Israel's history, there is no king. Now, Samuel will be instrumental in appointing a king later on in the book, but at this point, there is no king. So why is Hannah praying about this king? What is going on here? And I think this is another example where we see that Hannah is very familiar with the book of Moses, with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And, and she's understood that there is a promise about a king. For example, when God pr- first meets Abraham and, and promises him several things, one of the things he says is that several, many kings will come from Abraham. And in the four key poems that I've mentioned, two of them actually reference a king. Some of us, we might be familiar with this, this idea of a, a lion from the tribe of Judah, and that comes from Genesis 49, where Jacob sets his sons down and says, someday in the future, there will be a ruler who comes from the tribe of Judah. In one of these other poems, in Numbers 24, God uses Balaam to recount how God was with Israel and delivered them from Egypt. But then he mentions a future king. This future king will be higher than Gog, who who represents all the nations that oppose God. God will establish this king's kingdom and will deliver him out of Egypt. And this king will eat up the nations who oppose God. God's adversaries. It's kind of a a strange thing to say. What is going on here? But does that sound familiar to anything we've read? Let's look at, at what Hannah prays in verse 10 again. What does that sound like? In verse 10, Hannah prays, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them, he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And so I think Hannah is just referencing those previous poems and and using that similar language to talk about this future king that God will lift up, who will be the one who offers salvation to God's people and the one who destroys all of God's adversaries. What kind of a king will solve Israel's problem of rebellion? Well, it's not just any king. It's it's not a king that's going to, although maybe somewhat faithful, still fail and not follow God himself. It has to be a special king. And throughout Israel's history, we see kings come, kings go. Every now and then there's hope this could be the king before it comes crashing down. But Hannah's hope in this prayer isn't just in any king. 
It's in the king. It's in one specific king. The word she uses here to describe God's anointed one, it's the Hebrew word for Mashiach, which is where we get our English word Messiah. Hannah is the first one to mention the Messiah. She is talking about the Messiah king. And so this is, as we're here in, in 1 Samuel today, this is where this goes from just going from uh, an interesting or maybe kind of boring and, and long-winded history lesson to where this is really important for us. This is the Messiah King. Because as we fast forward, we have the benefit of seeing the rest of Scripture, how this story unfolds. And this first part of our point, that God will send his king to save his people, that has happened. God sent his son, the king, to save the world, which raises the question for every one of us in this room, have you humbled yourself before King Jesus? Do you recognize the pride in your life that causes you to sin, that makes you think that you know better than God, the only God, the creator, there is no one like him? Have you humbled yourself and submitted to follow King Jesus? Because the second part of this has yet to be fulfilled. King Jesus will come again in the future and judge the nations and those who proudly oppose God. Have we humbled ourselves before King Jesus? And for those of us who have, we have the privilege and the responsibility to invite others to know this King Jesus, to follow him and to be spared from his wrath. And the humility that characterizes that initial moment when we trust and submit to King Jesus that should increasingly mark our lives before God. We have a, a humble, dependent, needy posture before God, recognizing there's no one like him. Sometimes I think we talk about humility uh, as, as thinking less of ourselves. And I've heard some people say that it's, it's more than that. It's actually thinking of ourselves less. It's not as much about thinking less of ourselves, but thinking about ourselves less, where we start to think about others more and more. And, and we start to think about God more and more. We know him more and more and worship him more and more. And we start to see the bigger picture that I'm not the center of the universe, that God is accomplishing something really grand. And he invites me and he invites each one of us to participate in what he's doing. With God's empowerment, we get to the point where we humbly realize I exist for God and he doesn't exist for me. And this is probably something that, that we need to be reminded of every day. God will continue to, to humble us in these ways. But this kind of perspective really shapes and, and influences the way we live life each day, how we walk through the various seasons and, and steward the opportunities and the challenges that God puts in front of us. And so as, as we think about this, how having humble hearts leads to satisfaction in God. 
I've just put together a few questions that, that may be helpful as we try to daily evaluate, where am I? These questions should be on the screen. Because Hannah walked through barrenness. She walked through giving birth to Samuel, raising him for a few short years, giving him up to serve the Lord. And God used her time of prayer, her husband's encouragement, but he used his word and and the truths about himself to shape her heart, to remind her of who he is and what his promises are and how she can find satisfaction and joy, even in the challenging circumstance that she was in. And so for us here today, how much more is the same satisfaction available to us if we stand before God in humility, knowing him only through King Jesus? And we who have a fuller understanding of of what God has done throughout history as we see his word, those of us who have received his spirit as he helps us pursue satisfaction in God alone rather than our circumstances. What are these things that that keep us from finding satisfaction in God? Because this is what God created us for, and and the only way we'll find true, lasting satisfaction is by growing in a more intimate knowledge of who he is and a deeper relationship with him. And so as we ponder these things, as we talk about these things, as we live these things out today, will you join me in in prayer, asking God for his help in this area. Father, we thank you for the story of Hannah, and uh, we thank you that we can read about her in your word um, and just what she's able to teach us in her prayer. And God, we ask that we would find our satisfaction in you, that you would satisfy us um, today uh, with your steadfast love, Um, that we would follow you and and serve you um, all of our days, that we would offer ourselves up as instruments, uh, consecrated uh, for service to you. We ask for your help and your empowerment in these areas and pray these things in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Amen.